You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome to the broadcast. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 23rd day of August, 2012, for you stateside, and 24th day of August, 2012, for me here in Japan. So tonight is Thursday night, and as longtime listeners of the broadcast will know, Thursday night is generally the night that we'll have some headlines and open phones in preparation for the second half of the broadcast with James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. But as people who listened to last week's edition of the Food World Order broadcast here on Corbett Report Radio, you'll note that James Evan Pilato is moving on to greener pastures and uh, taking over the associate producer slot at the Ground Zero radio show as that starts to go uh, nation nationwide, uh, I believe, next week with, uh, with Clyde Lewis at Ground Zero Radio. So a very exciting opportunity for James, but unfortunately that does mean that he will not be available during this time slot to do Food, food World Order updates anymore. So instead, uh, we will be using this uh, Thursday evening either for uh, interviews or to go over headlines or to go over particular topics. And tonight we are going to be going over uh, uh, headlines and I'm also going to be opening up the phone lines and uh, of course the Twitter uh, feed as well. So if you want to, uh, to get in tonight on any topic that might be on your mind or on your radar or that you'd like to get my comment or opinion on, 1-800-313-9443. 1-800-313-9443. The lines will be wide open. Or you can tweet me at Corbett Report, and I'll get to your comment or question on air. But tonight we're going to uh, to go over some headlines and things that are on my radar, and we're going to pick up from something that Pepe Escobar was talking about on our program here just two nights ago when he mentioned the uh, the Iranian nuclear uh fiasco kerfuffle with the IAEA, which has been dragging on for years now, as I'm sure all of you are all too aware, and continues to drag on. And I was just on RT uh, to talk about this situation. There's a meeting that's taking place later today in Vienna, or is it tomorrow, between Iran and the IAEA to see what uh, what kind of uh, agreements they can come to in terms of inspections, etc., ahead of a report that's expected to be due uh, in mid-September from the IAEA, which is expected to, uh, because one of the, the lead uh, people on the team has already said that uh, that they're, they're going to say that Iran is suspected of being engaged in weapons-producing activities because they won't allow access to the Parchin military complex site in Iran which is, and of itself, as I pointed out on RT, something of a lie, because Iran has said that they are perfectly willing to allow IAEA inspectors to the site if the IAEA will uh, give them a, a schedule and go over what it is they're exactly looking for at the site, which, as I said on RT, doesn't seem unreasonable for people who know how the IAEA has been used as a weapon against uh, well, various regimes that, uh, regimes, that, that word that they use to demonize any government that, uh, they find, uh, is in the crosshairs. So, uh, again, it's, it's a, a very lengthy process that's been drawing out for some time. And just coincidentally, just as Israel is once again hyping up their, uh, war propaganda to try to launch a strike against the Iranian nuclear facilities and trying to get the American public and the public of the world on board with them for this, 
here comes the IAEA to help them out by putting forward this report that is likely to conclude that Iran is making steps towards producing weapons, a charge that they've leveled against Iran time and time and time again over the past several years, in which they have signally failed to come up with any evidence for. But now, the fact that uh, they're not being allowed instant and total access to the Parchin facility clearly means that it's producing nuclear weapons. Well, of course, there's a lot to be said about that. So we'll come back and take a look at some of the news stories that are trending right now on this topic. Once again, phone lines are wide open. 1-800-313-9443. We'll be back right after this. Turn it up! I want my bell. I want it. Keep the bells coming. Sweet green cash just dripping like honey. I'm a new kind of thug with the Washington buzz. Cause dealing that pays better than dealing drugs. All right, friends, welcome back to the broadcast. Once again, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're going over headlines and things that are making news around the world. Phone lines are wide open if you'd like to get in, 1-800-313-9443. In that first segment, we were talking about uh, what was going on in Iran right now with the IAEA stepping up international pressure from the international community, which uh, we all understand is the international gang of thugs who seek to impose their supposedly moral uh, uh, monopoly on nuclear power and supposedly dictating what nations can or cannot uh, develop nuclear energy, which, as we all know, is hypocrisy on its face, as Iran is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and has broken none of those uh, obligations that it has under that treaty, whereas Israel, who is first and foremost amongst the countries that are urging for a strike against Iran and its nuclear facilities, is not a member to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and never has been, and has never disclosed its nuclear weapons program, which is it is an openly un- understood secret that it has at the very least 100, and some estimates as many as 400 nuclear warheads that are uh, not disclosed because that would be a complete violation of the the idea of the nuclear non-proliferation treaty and the uh, the international community so it's um, for a long time just been quietly understood that Israel has nuclear weapons and a nuclear program, but is not a signatory to the NPT. Yet somehow they seem to believe that they have the moral authority to tell Iran what kinds of power uh, it can or cannot uh, pursue within its own borders. Clearly an absolutely ridiculous situation on its face, but we have to be aware of what's happening in order to better understand and parse the propaganda. So what better place to turn for that propaganda than Reuters, which is always reliable on that front. And they have a new story up, uh, just uh, came out uh, one day ago on August 22nd. IAEA to press Iran for access, but nuclear cleanup suspected. It reads in part, quote, UN nuclear inspectors will press again for access to a major military facility in talks with Iran this week, but the chances of finding any evidence of suspected atom bomb research may have dimmed because the site has been cleaned up, Western diplomats and experts say. Visiting the Perichin complex has become a priority for the International Atomic Energy Agency as it seeks to end what the West sees as prolonged Iranian stonewalling of its investigation into allegations of attempts to design a nuclear weapon. Iran denies accusations that it wants to develop nuclear weapon technology, but its refusal to limit and be more transparent about its nuclear activity has led to increasingly tough sanctions and sparked renewed speculations that Israel 
Tehran's arch enemy might bomb Iranian nuclear installations. And it goes on to talk about the satellite images that Western diplomats are pointing to as evidence of this supposed Iranian cover-up of their supposed nuclear program, their alleged program, which has never been proven and has never, uh, there's never been a drop of actual evidence that they have been pursuing a nuclear weapons program, at least not since 2003. And of course, uh, we have estimates coming from the CIA and the American intelligence establishment over the past several years saying that even if Iran were developing weapons, which there is no reason to believe that they are, they would still be several years away from attaining them. So uh, again, the the absolute manic fervor, fervor and fever pitch of the Iran war propaganda hysteria that's coming out of the Israeli press right now is baffling if one were using logic and uh, cold reasoning to assess the situation. But of course, it makes sense when we realize that really Israel is just trying to uh, to continue their agenda of regional hegemony and trying to take out any possible competitors. And of course, Iran being one of the, the big players on the in the region after the fall of Iraq in uh, 2003. So, so a very interesting steps being taken right now, exactly as this war propaganda is heating up for the IAEA to come along. And as I say, next month, they are expected to release a report that will supposedly conclude that Iran is making moves towards acquiring a nuclear weapon. Once again, this being based off of satellite imagery showing what they cannot see, showing that they cannot see what's happening at the Parchin uh, military complex, and thus it must be a pursuit of nuclear weapons. So once again, evidence of absence somehow becoming absence, absence of evidence becoming evidence of, of, of something, which is uh, on its face ridiculous. But this is the way that things move in this bureaucratic structure, which is seeking to, once again, enforce the monopoly of nuclear power on uh, on the peoples of the world and uh, to basically withhold that from nations that are attempting to pursue it. Now, whether or not Iran should be pursuing nuclear power is another debate altogether and one that uh, people of uh, Japan, for example, would have something to say about, and we'll get more into that later on in tonight's broadcast as we move on to other headlines. But continuing along the lines of Iran and what's happening with the IAEA, uh, it's interesting that, uh, that uh, Pepe Escobar noted uh, on the program the other night that rumors are swirling that former Iranian Prime Minister, or President Rafsanjani is being slated as a potential emissary to the P5 plus one, the Security Council plus Germany that is attempting to arbitrate this Iranian nuclear dispute. And uh, the, the latest uh, uh, emissary uh, diplomat, if you will, to that group is uh, slated to be, supposedly uh, tipped to be Rafsanjani, who is, uh, as Pepe Escobar told us, uh, more more politically acceptable to a larger segment of the international community. More people are willing to talk to Rafsanjani than a member of the Ahmadinejad government. So it's a potential for some sort of breakthrough on the issue, but we'll have to wait and see what comes of it. Um, probably, as uh, as Escobar was saying on the program, probably nothing will fundamentally shift in what Iran is willing to offer on the issue, which is 
basically willing to allow uh, Iran to, uh, or willing to allow the international community to dictate that uh, Iran will not be able to enrich uranium more than 20% and that they will get uh, import their enriched uranium from Russia or from some other outside source instead of producing it themselves. That's probably where things will end up on the bargaining table. And as we've seen, uh, the Obama administration for sure is willing to go along with the status quo of tougher and tougher sanctions, which are crippling the Iranian economy uh, in terms of the average person in Iran and what they're able to do in terms of business beyond their borders. It is certainly having an effect on the people of Iran, but it's having a very questionable effect on the Iranian government, which is forming bilateral relations with more and more countries to circumvent these sanctions. So uh, once again, just like the sanctions on Iraq that lasted a decade and which ultimately ended in the death of half a million Iraqi children, which Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said was perfectly politically acceptable because it was leading to the destabilization of the Iraqi government. Well, again, we're looking at that type of really genocide, when there's no other term for it, that, that uh, could be playing out in Iran in the coming years if these sanctions continue to hold. But more on the Rafsanjani angle uh, comes from the Turkish Weekly, turkishweekly.net, which had an article on August 6th, um, just a few weeks ago, former Iranian president adopt de- detente policy in nuclear dispute. And it basically says how Rafsanjani has come out in recent weeks to talk about a possible detente in relations between the Iranians and then the various players in this uh, dispute over Iran's nuclear power, and uh, basically trying to be a mediating voice. So just giving some further credence to what Pepe was saying there, as uh, Rafsanjani may or may not become that type of emissary to the P5 plus one on the issue. But another interesting story that I suggest people take keep their eyes on uh, just broke last week, and it flew pretty much under the radar from what I've seen, but it does, definitely deserves our attention. This one comes from Newser.com. Four in Germany accused of sending Iran nuclear parts. And it says Iran may have been getting some help with its nuclear reactor plans from four guys in Germany. The men have been arrested and are accused of breaking the embargo prohibiting Germans from trading nuclear-related items with Iran. They allegedly supplied Iran with millions of euros worth of specialty valves for a reactor, and prosecutors say they they knew how the parts would be put to use. The men are known only as Rudolf M., Kianzad Ka., Golamali Ka and Hamid K.H. per Germany's privacy laws. Three are Iranian-German dual nationals and one is a German national. There is also a fifth suspect, the BBC reports. Ninety customs officials and prosecutors were involved in searches of their homes and businesses. The men allegedly used front companies in order to hide the deals. Now, this is an interesting angle in all of this because this has suddenly come, this bust has suddenly come just again as the IAEA is ratcheting up their Iran nuclear hysteria propaganda. So the timing of this is interesting, and it is especially interesting when we note that with the AQ Khan network that was supposedly, that the developed nuclear weapons uh, technology for Pakistan, and which supposedly was proliferating them to various countries around the world, including Libya and others, that network was 
absolutely infested, penetrated, monitored, and puppeteered by the CIA and the American intelligence establishment from its inception in the 1970s. This is something that I went over in a report that I did for BoilingFrogsPost.com back in October of last year. It's called The CIA and the Nuclear Black Market, and it goes through the uh, absolutely documented, on-the-record historical fact that the CIA was all over uh, AQCon and his network, which supposedly flew under the radar for three decades, proliferating all of this nuclear technology around the world before he was finally caught. Uh, That's complete bogus, and everyone from the Dutch economic affairs minister to CIA whistleblowers to everyone else has exposed that the CIA was very much behind that. And uh, so this German team of people proliferating to Iran, could this be part of an intelligence, uh, American intelligence establishment operation? Could they be stinging, stinging their own guys to raise the Iranian nuclear hysteria? It's a possibility, and we'll have to see more about how this story develops, but it may be years before we find out anything definitive, as in the case, for example, with the t- Tanners in Switzerland. If you don't know about that, again, take a look at the CIA and the nuclear black market on BoilingFrogsPost.com. The link will be in the notes for tonight's episode, along with all the other articles, CorbettReport.com slash radio. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the program, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio on the Republic Broadcasting Network, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, we're going over the headlines that are making news around the world and trying to break down the propaganda that is behind a lot of those headlines and examine it for what it really is. And we started off talking about Iran and the IAEA, an important meeting taking place this Friday in Vienna to basically uh, start the, the ball rolling on a process that is expected to end up in a report next month from the IAEA, which is all but certain to blame Iran for pursuing nuclear weapons technology without any hard evidence to back that up. And we'll continue talking a little bit more about that. But first, we have a caller on the line. And once again, the lines are wide open tonight. one 800 313 But let's go to the lines. Let's go to Travis in Tennessee. Travis, thanks for joining us on the line tonight. Glad to be here, James. Thanks for having me. No problem. What's on your mind? Well, um, yeah, this uh, this talk about Iran is is very fascinating. I mean, the history in and of itself of the nuclear industry um, and and the U.S. efforts control of that industry is interesting in and of itself. I've been doing some research recently on thorium and how basically they couldn't weaponize thorium, so they ended up, you know, going with the <laughs> the really deadly, dangerous uranium. Uh, you know, of course, they can make bombs with with that form of nuclear power, but they, you know, necessarily couldn't with thorium. And there was all kinds of, um, you know, social benefits, of course, to using thorium. But anyway, you know, from the voluntarist perspective, it's not like any of that should have happened to begin with. But <laughs> nevertheless. Thorium is a is a great technology. I'm interested. Um, I'm wondering why um, you know Iran wouldn't just go ahead and and use that kind of safe uh, nuclear technology and promote it that they were doing that that way. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, to a certain extent, it's because thorium, although it has been tried and there have been test reactors that have been run for uh, thousands of hours, so it is a proven technology in that sense, but its commercial uh, ability to uh, to run a large-scale commercial operation has never been proven. And uh, there have been in- incidents, for example, Germany was running a type of uh, thorium 
uh, partially thorium-powered reactor that had uh, issues that some people blamed on the thorium um, nature of the reactor. So there have been some issues with this in the past. So I think it might be a question of whether or not that it's uh, commercially viable. Certainly the uranium um, reactors that they're trying to pursue are the exact type of reactors that are used in nuclear programs around the world and are the ones that are promoted by institutions like the IAEA, which is nothing other than a front for the nuclear power industry, which, as you point out quite correctly, is nothing more than a front for the nuclear weapons industry. So I think Iran is uh, playing into the game uh, that the big boys are playing. And and once again, uh, I think that it's important to point out that doesn't necessarily mean that Ahmadinejad and their government is are perfect angels in all of this or that I support them per se. It's just that uh, it's hypocrisy on its face for the IAEA to be able to tell them whether or not they can have a nuclear power industry. To be honest, I don't blame them for trying to get a nuclear weapon. I mean, if you look at the way they're surrounded, um, you know, and, and the threats that are that are coming their way, um, and especially if you think about, you know, countries that have nuclear weapons do not get attacked. That's so, uh, exactly yeah, right. That's just and, something to consider in and of itself. And um, it is interesting. I mean, we've we heard for decades and decades about the mutually assured destruction and why nuclear weapons were such a great thing when it was America versus the Soviet Union. And we've seen how Iran and Pakistan have been, although, of course, constantly threatening each other, at least relatively stabilized in relations and n- never had a full-scale all-out war since the uh, the the uh, they both acquired nuclear weapons. But somehow in, in the Middle East, in Iran, for example, that's just completely and utterly unthinkable and everyone knows israel has uh, hundreds of nuclear weapons but uh, that's perfectly okay but for anyone else to even contemplate it is like is the end of the world again just part of the hypocrisy that underlies the whole system exactly exactly and the psyops that are going on around iran are uh, absurd you know it's just i mean you mentioned several in the in the lead up uh, to taking my call but yeah, it's just like every day there's some other psyop related to Iran in Syria. So I, I'm, you know, I'm wondering about your thoughts. I, I listened to the roundtable that you had uh, about Syria, and that was really interesting. So, you know, what are you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you think that we're gonna go into Syria first, and then you know try to go into Iran after that, or what do you think? I just don't know if it's politically feasible that they're going to have a full-scale military intervention in Syria, anything like they did in Libya, but I do think that they are going to continue funding the the insurgency there and uh, trying to... to prop up the terrorist proxies that they're using to destabilize that country. And I think they're going to keep pressing with that. And uh, the more time and money and effort they pump into it, the more likely in the end it is to actually have the effect of toppling Assad in one form or another as uh, as things become untenable. There is a chance, I suppose, that Assad will be able to to basically um, kick out the, the, the terrorists and, and round them up, but it's not very likely at this point because they have uh, so much back of not the international community in that flowery way that, that it's presented in the media. They have the backing of the key players of that international community who have billions and billions of dollars at their resource uh, to throw behind it, including, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and of course, the United States and Turkey and all of the people who are lining up to get a piece of the Syrian pie. So I don't think the prognosis is really good for the Syrian uh, government, and we'll see what, what how this plays out. Uh, once again, it doesn't mean I'm a supporter of Assad per se. It's just I'm a supporter of the Syrian people's ability to decide what they want to do with their country internally and without the interference of outside parties. Right. Putin's um, relationship, and, and especially China's, um, you know, 
I mean, I think just genuinely, I think the U.S. is concerned about Russian and China China intervention. Uh, if there is any any kind of intervention in Syria, absolutely, that's uh, very much on yep. the table. All right, Travis, we're going to have to leave it there. We're up against a break. Thank you for your call. Thank you, sir. All right, everyone, let's move along right uh, here. We're talking tonight about the Iranian nuclear situation and how that's been playing out. And, of course, a big factor in all of this is the sanctions that have been applied against Iran for its uh, supposed pursuit of nuclear weapons, which, once again, has never been really demonstrated by the IAEA, but uh, has been used as a club against them. And as I mentioned before, the sanctions are not so much uh, really directed against the Iranian government, which I'm sure will continue to function. It is more so directed against the people. So let's just document that a little bit. We can turn to the Fars News Agency for one angle on that. A senior Iranian commander dismisses sanctions as ineffective. And it says here that the deputy chief of staff of the Iranian Armed Forces, Brigadier General Maksud Jazayeri, played down the U.S. and EU pressures and sanctions against the Islamic Republic as ineffective, reminding that Washington and its Western allies are now at their weakest position ever, while Iran is moving on an upward trend of progress. So I would take that with a little grain of salt at the very least, given that it's from the FARS news agency, but uh, there is something to to that um, that we can find, for example, from the timesleader.com. Iran clings to Asian oil markets as sanctions bite. When Iran welcomes leaders to a world gathering next week, few will get a grander reception than India's prime minister. As Tehran tries to offset the squeeze from Western oil sanctions, there is no greater priority than counting energy-hungry Asian markets. The planned visit by Manmohan Singh, the first by an Indian prime minister in more than a decade, puts into sharp relief the sanctions-easing strategies by Iran and the political complexities for Washington that limits its pressure on Asian powers needing Tehran's oil. Oil purchases by India, China, and South Korea, which decided this week to resume Iranian imports, have not covered Tehran's losses uh, after it was tossed out of the European market in July, but they have given Iran a critical cushion that brings in tens of millions of dollars in revenue a day and means that Iran has dropped only one ranking to stand as OPEC's third largest producer. So Iran is feeling the pinch because of these sanctions, but it is not as bad as could it could have been if if America and the, the Western allies uh, who are part of the uh, the allies of evil as opposed to the axis of evil. I suppose we can coin a new term here. Um, they are uh, they are abso- absolutely right. I think the Iranian commander there uh, was right to point out that they are at a at a low point in terms of their ability to inflict their will around the globe uh, in the ways that they used to. And uh, things like India, for example, and others, uh, South Korea, others who are really tied in with the, uh, the Washington and the American military umbrella, uh, doing some, some quite defiant acts and, and going around these Iranian oil sanctions, etc. Uh, it, it shows that there is a weakness on the American side and that the Iranian government, it's not certainly not flourishing under the sanctions, but probably will not collapse under them either. And it may, in fact, just be building up that non-aligned movement that Pepe Escobar was talking about, the, the, uh, the big meeting that's going to be taking place in Iran next month that promises to bring together the vast majority of the world's population and the vast majority of the number of countries in the world together uh, as, a, as a show of solidarity against what is being done against countries like Iran by the allies of evil. 
And, uh, and unfortunately, this doesn't mean that the Iranian people are free from the effects of these sanctions. So we can turn, for example, to the Republic.com. As Iran's oil flow to Asia, sanctions chipping away at merchants and factories at home. And it starts out with some close-to-home examples of that. A Tehran shoe factory is abandoned by its European leather suppliers. Iranian cooking oil manufacturers are operating at nearly half capacity because they can't get enough imported grains. In Tehran's bazaar, many merchants refuse to sell Western goods purchased with dollars because the downward spiral of Iran's currency has eaten their profit. While Iran's mainstay oil exports remain the centerpiece of Western sanctions, intended to wring concessions over Iran's nuclear program and ease Israeli threats of a military strike, the Islamic Republic hangs on as OPEC's third largest exporter as it feeds the huge, hungry energy markets in China, India, and across Asia. Less noted, but potentially more unsettling to Iran's leaders in the coming months, is the increasing pinch on the workaday economy, the commerce, transactions, and trading that provide the paychecks and economic lifelines for millions of people. So once again, the people will pay for the price for what is happening on the geopolitical stage. And uh, to whatever extent it's theater and whatever extent it's just puppets uh, playing with each other in the big boy stage, it does have an effect downwind in the uh, in the average person's pocketbook. And unfortunately, millions and millions of average Iranians who are trying to eke out a living just like you and I are, are going to be feeling the effects of these sanctions much more so than the government itself. So once again, it's a big nuclear hypocrisy power play playing, taking place at the international level, and it's instituted by the IAEA and given this, this bureaucratic cover as if it's some sort of organization that's some sort of neutral arbiter of this dispute, and not one that is very much just privy to a gang of thugs that seeks to monopolize nuclear power for themselves. Well, that's one perspective on what's happening with nuclear power in the world right now. For a very different perspective, let's shift over to my neck of the woods to Japan, where, of course, the Fukushima nuclear situation continues to unfold and continues to remind us why the nuclear energy industry, based as it is on the uranium nuclear reactor paradigm, is so fundamentally flawed and does need to change. And uh, people, again, in Japan are on the front lines of this debate in more ways than one. So let's take a look at some of the latest headlines posted up to my own FukushimaUpdate.com. Once again, being updated several times a week, I certainly hope that you're keeping up to date with it as more and more continues to come out on Fukushima, but unfortunately it continues to be swept under the rug. So let's take a look at some of the latest headlines that are up there right now, including this one particularly interesting, Plutonium Traces Detected at 10 Locations in Fukushima. This comes by way of the Japan Times. Plutonium, believed to be from the Fukushima number 1 nuclear plant, has been detected at 10 locations in four municipalities in Fukushima Prefecture, the science ministry said. The highest reading was 11 becquerels of plutonium-238 per square meter, detected in the town of Namie, the ministry said Tuesday. That is about 1.4 times higher than the level that originated from fallout from nuclear weapons tests abroad. The other municipalities are the town of Okuma, the village of Itate, and the city of Minamisoma. And wait for it. Yes, here it comes. The ministry said there was no health hazard, given the small quantities involved. 
Well, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to go visit Fukushima, doesn't it? Um, of course, we can take that uh, health advisory from the ministry with a hefty grain of salt. And for more on why this is an important story in and of itself, uh, it, it goes back to one of the aspects of what happened at Fukushima that's been swept under the rug for the past year and a half, and that's the fact that plutonium did escape, that plutonium was one of the contaminant fallouts from the uh, the Fukushima disaster, and that's very significant because plutonium is one of the most radioactive and most dangerous substances known to mankind. It is absolutely a scourge, and the fact that plutonium was one of the contaminants that got out is not something that's well known among the public. We hear a lot about the cesium radiation contamination and uh, some of the other, the iodine-131, etc., that was released, but we don't hear nearly as much about the plutonium. So for more on that issue, we can go all the way back to the very, very, very beginning of the crisis, March 17th, 2011, naturalnews.com, edited by Mike Adams, of course, who we had on the program here last week, uh, had an article up by Ethan Huff called Mox Plutonium Fuel Used in Fukushima's Unit 3 Reactor Two Million Times More Deadly Than Enriched Uranium. Quote, largely absent from most mainstream media reports on the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster is the fact that a highly dangerous mixed oxide MOX fuel in, is present in 6% of the fuel rods at the plant's Unit 3 reactor. Why is MOX a big deal? According to the Nuclear Information Resource Center, this plutonium-uranium fuel mixture is far more dangerous than typical enriched uranium. A single milligram of MOX is as deadly as 2 million milligrams of normal enriched uranium. So I'll let you continue reading that article for more on this, but suffice it to say, yes, plutonium is a very, very dangerous substance, and the fact that it got out of the Fukushima plant at all is something that was not really talked about very much in any of the mainstream uh, reporting on Fukushima, even when the mainstream was actually reporting on Fukushima. And as anyone in the America right now or any of the other countries where you might be listening to me uh, will know, the vast majority of the world's international media has turned its attention away from Fukushima since TEPCO announced back in December of last year, don't worry, cold shut down, everything's okay, go back to sleep. Uh, leaving out just niggly little details like the fact that uh, the site will not be actually cleaned up for, at the very least, several decades. And, of course, the, the, the materials themselves will not continue, will not cease to be radioactive for several millennia. But let's leave that aside and just, just trust that now Japan has everything under control and there's nothing to worry about. Well, this is one indication that that, of course, is not the case. Let's move on to some other interesting developments that are going on. Continuing along the lines of radiation and some of the effects that are still continuing to be felt, there's this article that's posted up again on FukushimaUpdate.com via the Daily Yamiuri uh, from August 23rd, Record Cesium Found in Fish Off Fukushima. Tokyo Electric Power Co. has said that 38,000 becquerels of radioactive cesium per kilogram have been detected in a fish caught for sampling about 20 kilometers offshore from the crippled Fukushima No. 1 nuclear power plant. The amount is the highest detected in seafood caught off of Fukushima Prefecture since the nuclear crisis uh, following the Great East Japan earthquake, and drastically higher than the government limit of 100 becquerels per kilogram for food. The number translates into about 0.4 millisievert of estimated internal radiation exposure when eating one kilogram 
of the fish. Uh, that's a remarkable number. 0.4 millisieverts uh, as a one-time, lifetime radiation dose is is not an incredible amount. Of course, there is no safe dose of radiation, but 0.4 millisieverts is not an incredible amount. But to think of that of getting a 0.4 millisievert internal radiation exposure, which all of the science shows is much more dangerous than the external exposure from contaminants out there in in the world, when it's actually taken in and ingested, it's much much more deadly because of its proximity to vital internal organs, and to get 0.4 millisieverts of radiation from eating one kilogram of this radioactive fish is very worrying and should be worrying to anyone, certainly in Japan, who's eating any of the seafood that's being fished out of the Pacific, which is uh, certainly in the Fukushima area, a radioactive toxic sludge. And uh, this uh, article goes on to quote a TEPCO official who's saying that there may be a hot spot in the ocean and the fish may have eaten there. So trying to say, oh, this is probably just a little isolated incident and nothing really to worry about. But just that once again, to put those numbers on the table, 38,000 becquerels of radioactive cesium per kilogram detected in this fish, 38,000 as a opposed to the Japanese uh, government's limit of 100 becquerels per kilogram of radioactive material in food. So uh, several hundred times more radioactive than even the Japanese government wants people to consume. And there's a couple of related stories on this uh, rice cesium levels to go online and 19,507 becquerel cesium in Fukushima man eating shiitake mushrooms from Namie City. So once again, uh, there's a lot going on in, the f- in terms of the food supply and the food safety here in Japan. Certainly for people who are in Japan, I certainly hope that you are staying away from the seafood unless you know exactly where it's coming on from and can determine it's not coming from the Pacific. But uh, myself and my, my wife are avoiding seafood altogether, and it's not fun, it's not pleasant, but we are doing it because we do not want to consume this fish, which is increasingly coming on the market. And for people who've been following Fukushima update, you will know that Fukushima octopus and uh, other fish are now being sold in the fish markets in Tokyo. So uh, once again, it's uh, business as usual, or it's becoming business as usual. And the Japanese government is trying to uh, usher things along and uh, make sure that stories like these don't get too much play. For people who are interested in following this story, you can use the tags on the side of FukushimaUpdate.com. All of the keywords for all of the articles are there, and you can click on food safety, for example, or you can click on fish to follow those stories specifically. Also, there's uh, tags for each of the individual reactors, reactor 1, 2, 3, and 4, so you can click on a reactor 3, for example, tag and find all of the stories on FukushimaUpdate.com that are specifically about that reactor. So I hope people are using the site in that regard as well. Uh, Moving on, we have this story that goes to show that at least the Japanese people are using this uh, crisis to make an opportunity, as Rahm Emanuel and the other uh, New World Order minions would always preach us to do. Well, at least people are taking that to heart here in Japan and trying to make some sort of lemonade out of the lemons of Fukushima. And we have this uh, from XSKF. Anti-nuclear Japan, nearly 90% favor zero-nuke policy. And this is talking about a uh, national energy policy poll that was conducted recently with 80,000 respondents 
uh, uh, sorry, 7,000 respondents have been calculated so far. And of those 7,000 respondents to this government poll about nuclear policy, uh, 90% of them so far have been in favor of a zero nuke policy for Japan that is completely scrapping the nuclear uh, energy industry here and moving on to other sources of, of energy. For people who want more on this process and what some of the alternatives might be for people here in Japan, you might want to turn to uh, episode 237 of my podcast, which was released just a few weeks ago, where I talked about this uh, this issue and the uh, possibility of Japan moving and transitioning away from nuclear power altogether. That's episode 237 of my podcast. It's called Fukushima's Biggest Secret. So you might want to check that out. It's also available online on YouTube, etc. elsewhere as other people are starting to post these videos around. And let me just remind all of you out there in Radioland that you can go to CorbettReport.com a few hours after each episode of this broadcast airs. And you'll be able to find not only the audio of this broadcast archive there, but also the video. I'm making this available as a video podcast. So you can get that. You can spread it around. You are free to post this to your YouTube account or whatever, you, what, what have you. Uh, just spread the word on this broadcast and help to get this word out to others. As I'm hoping to uh, to be able to break through the, the the media blockade of the corporate controlled lapdog media and hopefully get some nuggets of truth out there on Fukushima and on Iran and on all of the various ob- uh, uh, subjects that we're talking about here on a day to day basis. All right, we're coming up against another break, so uh, let's let's go to that break and we will come back just to finish things up with uh, some more unfortunately worrying developments here from Fukushima and the nuclear crisis. But uh, uh, let me just remind all of you out there that if you do appreciate the work that I'm doing on these issues and you want to help continue to do it, please consider signing up for a subscription, either a newsletter subscription or uh, purchasing a DVD. All of those funds do help to keep the websites going and help me running it, so your support is appreciated. On that note, let's take another short break, and we'll be right back to wrap things up right after these messages. All right, friends, welcome back. Here we are in the final moments of tonight's broadcast of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and also of FukushimaUpdate.com. And once again, let me remind people out there, if you are interested in the latest on the Fukushima situation, I hope you will check out FukushimaUpdate.com on a regular basis as it continues to be updated with the latest on the crisis. And uh, just uh, wrapping up with some of the latest headlines here, let's turn to the top post at, at, at the moment on Fukushima Update. Scientists fear increased genetic defects in Fukushima. This is from DW.de, and it's a couple of weeks old now, but I thought it was worth posting because it has some valuable information in there. Uh, basing, basing its story off of the recent reports that butterflies in Fukushima are showing signs of genetic damage from the radiation fallout from Fukushima. And uh, going on from there, let's read the opening paragraphs of this story. The effects of the nuclear disaster in Fukushima have now become visible in butterflies. Researchers worry the effects may start to be felt among human beings. The butterflies found to be deformed as a result of radiation from the nuclear meltdown in Fukushima belong to the butterfly family of gossamer-winged butterflies. These butterflies can be found throughout the world. They are very sensitive to changes in the environment, 
to water and air pollution, chemicals, and radioactivity. For scientists, gossamer-winged butterflies are thus a good biological indicator of the health of the environment. When they get sick, it means there is a problem somewhere in the ecosystem. Even if there doesn't seem to be any apparent problems, Winfred Eisenberg, radiation expert and member of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, told DW, The findings of the Japanese scientists don't surprise me. These were similar findings in studies continued after Chernobyl, he explained. That's what I have posted up at Fukushima Update, but if you click through on the continue reading link, you can continue reading the rest of that article, and I hope you will, because it has some very interesting information that you don't often see talked about uh, in relation to Fukushima, relating back to Chernobyl and some of the some of the real similarities uh, between those two incidents, because we've uh, been told a lot of the differences, and there were certainly differences between those disasters and the way they played out, but in terms of the radioactive effects on the health and the environment, of those around the plants, I think we can at least look at some of the similarities. So talking about that, uh, they noted in Chernobyl some of the very same butterfly deformities that were found in Fukushima recently were observed in plants and insects around Chernobyl, including also in uh, mice and birds. And this DW article goes on to say that, uh, but not only animals and insects pass on genetic defects to their offspring, Nine months after Chernobyl, there was a significant increase in the number of babies born with trisomy 21, also known as Down syndrome, a disease in which there is one copy too many of chromosome 21 in the DNA. And it goes on to talk about the deformities and miscarriages taking place in high radioactive areas, even outside of Chernobyl in the wake of that crisis. And unfortunately, if these butterfly deformities are anything to go by, that may be in the future for people in Fukushima. And we have seen reports of increased cysts um, in children there. There still needs to be more study of what's going on there, and there needs to be more transparency with the data, as always. But we're going to have to leave it there, folks. We are fresh out of time. So once again, all I can do is exhort you to continue looking at FukushimaUpdate.com and CorbettReport.com. And of course, whatever alternative media you support, please get the word out to other people. That is the way that this information gets out there. And we bypass the blockade on information that the corporate lapdog media has set up. And on that note, that's all for tonight. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, bidding you all good adieu for another evening, and I will see you again tomorrow night. So until then, thanks for listening, and take care.